Well, it's Tuesday. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Love Babs Love Talk. I'm Babs Rose Ivy. Happy Tuesday. See, I know it's Tuesday. I was practicing. Because, you know, you have a long weekend and you come back, you just think, oh, it's Monday. Nope. Yesterday was Monday. Monday was Labor Day. So it's Tuesday. Hello. Hello. I'm so glad you are here. So uh, 10 o'clock, I get to talk to Nicholas. 10 15, I get to talk and talk to, to my friend Nicholas Dowdall about that damn book, The Other Side of Prospect. <laughs> that, that wore me out to no end. Oh, my God. It was so good, though. I mean, good in a sense that it's a story I didn't know fully because uh, I had my own trials and tribulations around the same time uh, with a very, very different outcome. So uh, so it was good to sort of, and, and there's some backstory that I did not know. So I don't know. And then I learned some stuff that I did not know. Predatory lending and, oh God, it was just so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, was, it was just a lot. It was a lot. And uh, it just made me mad. Like it just, it just made me mad on a lot of levels. So anyway, he's coming on at 1015 to talk about that. And uh, we'll have a good conversation. Don't forget, Lit Fest is uh, coming up this weekend. So I'm excited about that. I won't be here Friday because I am taking my second turn at the LSAT. And, and I'm just ready for it to be over. Like, I am truly ready for this part to be over. Because it just seems like it's just such a wall. It's such a wall. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm just ready for it to be done. I've had enough of it. Seriously. Uh, and then to move on to other things, I feel paralyzed by it. Uh, but there's not too much I can do at the moment. Uh, but just get through it. Work with my coach and just try to do a good job. That's, I mean, that's really essentially it. Just try to do a good job as best I can and, you know, and work on some other things that uh, that require my attention in order to get into a law school. I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I don't feel, I don't feel terribly optimistic in the sense that, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what to expect. I want to be pleasantly surprised, I guess. I want to go to law school, but I don't, I don't, I just, and it's not that I don't believe in the possibility. I believe in the possibility. It just seems now that I'm close to applying, it just feels like a, a, a daunting effort, you know. But I'm going to stay in the moment and enjoy the ride because it's been an experience. Uh, and if I don't get in anywhere in a way that I want to get in somewhere, uh, then we'll just move on to the next thing. I mean... That's all I could do. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't complain. So I hope everybody had a good weekend. I had a great weekend. I spent a lot of time LSATing. So I didn't get to go to the Ron Lawrence tribute. I hear it was nice. I seen pictures. Uh, it seemed like it was a good time. Uh, they're going to do it every year. I, I reached out to Jackie Buster 
Um, I had bought a ticket, but I knew I couldn't go because I was studying. Because I just have to spend a lot of time this week just being in LSAT mode. Uh, so anyway, uh, so the Ron Lawrence tribute was was amazing. Lots of people came out. I saw the pictures and uh, high five. I hope they raised some good money. Happy birthday, Ben Allen. Happy birthday. I know she's not listening to me, not one bit. And, and she might not even be up. Happy birthday. I think she goes back tomorrow. So happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Woo! Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Ben Allen. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Woo! I believe she's 69. I could say that because she's not listening. Because if she was listening, she'd come over here and kick my ass. Uh, but happy birthday. Thursday, I was with her because we went to see uh, Christine Oldman at the Madison Beach House. So we had dinner at Madison Beach House restaurant. And they went on their little green part, um, you know, out there on the sand to the beach uh, for the concert. It's good. Christine Oldman is amazing. I mean, she's just rock and roll. She's just a rock and roll goddess. So. So that was that was good on Thursday night. That was my little last time I could really uh, hang out. I was at the press conference on Friday uh, for the city of New Haven. Adrian Jefferson is amazing. Uh, talking about the uh, you know the American Rescue money, the American Rescue grants um, that uh, we got the partner with the city on from the Arts Council of Greater New Haven. And so, and a couple of the folks who got grants uh, and other partners. So it was really good. It was nice to be on top of the Community Foundation on that underutilized outside space that they have and that they don't want anybody else to use. So maybe the next executive director will like put some money in it and trick it out so it could be a viable, usable space in New Haven because it's got one of the best views. You know, and uh, and it's a great space. And if they just put some money into it, it could be an amazing space. Do you know what I mean? Put some greenery up there. Put a whole damn garden up there, for God's sake. And let people come up and use the space in that community. You know, there's a way to police it. I mean, I mean, who's coming up to rob the community foundation? I know they did it because, you know, safety issue around COVID. Yeah, so uh, I get it. But still, it's outside space. So make people be covered up. 
coming up in the elevator, and then when they get outside, they get unmasked. I mean, I really, honestly. Uh, anyway, uh, that's the whole wide world. So uh, that was good. That was a nice little, you know, the mayor spoke. Everybody spoke, like a gazillion people spoke. And then I was the last one to speak, which was good, you know. Uh, so that was Friday. Uh, Saturday, I think I helped Ife move some stuff. That was it. Sunday was the Ron Lawrence tribute. Uh, and Sunday was uh, Ryan's last day preaching at uh, UCC Spring Glen. Uh, I did have my writers group on Sunday. That was good. And uh, so here we are. Monday was Labor Day. And, uh, you know, I struggled through some of the LSAT prep tests. I mean, I struggled through. I struggled through. Um, my daughter brought me some good dinner last night. She brought um, Wild Tika. It used to be Tika Takeaway. But it was wild, now it's Wild Tika. And then she finished it off with uh, some cookies from Insomnia Cookie. So that was nice. <laughs> and here we are. Tuesday. And Tuesday is my friend Bet Allen's 69th birthday. Woohoo! And then uh I got Nicholas Dowdorf at uh 10:15. Talk about the paperback comes out this morning. So the paperback is hitting bookstores and all the places today. Um and, and some people that I know read the book that I didn't even know would read the book. Like Ife's uncle um read the book. And uh, it was funny because he's like, I know these cats. <laughs> I'm going to give my copy to my brother. I'm going to drop it off to him so he can read it. Because uh, I think he'd be interested in reading it too. Because, you know, I, we are we are in this book. He's not in the book, but I'm in the book. But we have blood relatives in the book. I don't know what you do. I don't know what to do when you, when you are uh, related to sociopaths. <laughs> I don't know what you do with that information, except to say I work very hard at battening down my sociopathic tendencies. I guess owning them is the beginning of not being one. I guess. I guess. Uh, Dory, Dory is on. Uh, is coming on 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 Thursday, and I think she's coming on to talk about a couple of things. Uh, I think because they're having the uh, the uh, Fête Noir uh, event, you know, a take on Din uh, Blanc, uh, Blanc on Blanc Din, or Din on Blanc, uh, except, you know, a Fête Noir is all about black, wearing black and showing up in black. So, so I believe they have that coming up. Um, the Connecticut Folk Festival and Green Expo is happening Saturday at 11 o'clock. Elm City Lit Fest is happening uh, at, oh, at Dixwood Q House Saturday at 11 o'clock till about 6 o'clock. So there's all kinds of stuff. And it's it's merged with, uh, it's partnered with the um, uh, Popular Romance Conference that's happening at Yale. So I spend my time between those two things. And then Sunday, I've got some plans. Invitations went out. So those that got invitations hopefully will show up and 
I'll do it all again on the 22nd. We'll see what happens. We'll see if people have time. You know, we'll see if people have time. And, uh, well, I mean, we'll have a good time. We'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens. So, but uh, anyway, uh, and that's it. That's, 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 that's so far, that's the week. Uh, that's the week. I don't have too much going on. I mean, I have to spend this week studying and just getting past, uh, past this part. And then I don't think we get our scores until the end of the month. But uh, I'm just going to relax into it. That's all I can do. It's just relax into it and hope for the best. Prepare for the worst. And uh, and get my get my life together and move forward. We'll see what happens. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens. So, what is going on in the world? So much stuff going on in the world. Oh, I don't even know. But let you know what. Let me check. Let me check some of my favorite sites. Let me check the. Uh, let me check. Start my day. Checking the New Haven Independent. I don't, is Paul Bass back in town? Is he still touring the world? He's still on. They're still on tour. <laughs> are they? Are they still on tour? I tell you what. I I really like that Britney uh, Mayberry knee black. Uh, she was such. She was such a joy to talk to on the porch. I mean, she she really was a joy to talk to. And uh, and I enjoyed her very much, so so that was good. It was very very good. So I'm glad that um, there's some, the piece on her. I think she's amazing. Oh, and the um, four thousand five hundred people did the uh, New Haven Road Race. Lots and lots of people. Lots and lots of people did the road race. So uh, I'm glad people were out there doing it. Guess who wasn't out there? I damn sure wasn't out there. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> I I stick. Although Harry and I are walking it next year. We we're gonna we're gonna walk it. We are walking it next year. That's what we said we were gonna do. So uh yeah, people did the 20k. Yeah, no. Uh, no. Okay, why are people talking to me this morning? Uh, there was a lot of people out there. And they had a beautiful day for it. Beautiful day for a run, I thought. You know, the pictures look great. All kinds of people were out there. I know damn well, I know who wasn't out there. <laughs> but Harry and I are doing it next year. We're gonna walk to 5K because Harry will have his new knees by then. I will be three years into new hips. So Harry, next year, we're, as soon as it opens up, we're signing up. I will sign you up and pay the fees. Don't you worry. <laughs> we're doing it, Harry. We're going to do it together. Whoever else wants to join us. So I'm just reminding Harry because I had to remind Harry. Because you know, 
Harry will book something out of town and be like, oh, oh yeah, I'm I'm in Russia. <laughs> so uh and then they they got a they got a kids fun run too. I don't I we're not running anything. We're gonna walk it. So we're just gonna walk. So uh so we'll just take a walk and uh it'll be nice. <laughs> we'll just we'll just take a walk. Uh and uh it'll be fine. People are out there though. It's a nice turnout. And oh, you win money if you if you win. So uh the road race hosts the United States Amateur Track and Field, the 20K championships. You could win almost forty thousand dollars. So it was like seven Olympians running for that money. Can you imagine? Oh, Harry, we can get in shape. We could run. We could. We could do that. <laughs> Forty G's, Harry. We can't win that. We could win that, Harry. <laughs> if we start training right now. We might we might be able to win that. So forty six Labor Day, forty five hundred. This is probably one of the largest ones they've ever had. So they had a twenty k, a five k, a thirteen point one mile race, uh, and a fun run for kids. So uh, I don't know why people think I, I'm on air. I, I, I'm only on air. <laughs> ah. Okay, good morning. I'm on air 9 to 11 every day. I'm not on air. That's it. No, you bring. Yeah, you know. Mm. Uh, I'm texting people because they're texting me. Anyway, uh, that's the way in the world. So, so it looked like it was a good time. The the New Haven, the road race, the Faxon. Facts and road race looked like it was a hell of a good time. Looks like it was really a good time. Uh, and then what else was going on? Uh, oh, yeah, then the piece, first day, fresh started co-op, musicians gathering. So school is back in session. So if, if it wasn't back uh, last week, it's fully back today. Yes, because all the buses are hitting the hitting the roads and kids are at bus stops and yeah back to school back to school back to school ooh i'm so glad that uh i bought that game oh my god i was thinking the other day i was like ooh school supplies all the times that i had to go cuz my kids were in parochial school and you had to go to these places and get their uniforms. And 
uh, khaki pants. And what I would do with my kids, you know, they, the boys would get four pair point pants, uh, two long sleeve shirts, two polo shirts, a sweater that I swear to God, every year they would lose a damn sweater. I would get them a sweater because sometimes a sweater was better than a jacket, you know, because it, it would be cool, but it wouldn't be cold. So a sweater would, you know. And every year, each and every last one of them would misplace these sweaters. Every year. they would. I stopped buying the sweaters. I was like, y'all go look at Lost and Found and see if your sweater. I put their names in them. And they, sometimes they find them. Sometimes, sometimes they, somebody will give it back to them at the end of the year. I'm like, okay. All right. Lost and found. So I buy the boys four pair of pants, two long sleeve shirts, two short sleeve shirts, and a sweater. And of course, t-shirts, because they never wore their shirts without t-shirts. And then they'd get two pair of shoes and a pair of sneakers. A black pair of shoes, a brown pair of shoes, and a pair of sneakers for gym. And the girls. Uh, because they had to wear skirts, they'd get two skirts. They'd get two skirts, two dresses, two pair of shoes, and a uh, pair of sneakers. And then they'd get uh, two long sleeve shirts, two short sleeve shirts. Um, because they could wear skirts and dresses, you know. And uh, and that was kind of nice. I, although I, I, I wish I would have thought about uniforms earlier but it wasn't until i heard somebody somebody was on somebody's show at wnhh and they were talking about uniforms are preparatory for a prison and uh i can't who i think it was uh was it jonathan berryman who said it and it got me thinking and it bothered me so much and then uh, i heard somebody else say the same thing and i thought oh my god they're absolutely right. You know, uh, uniforms are perfect because we think uniforms are a leveling, leveling the playing field. You know, this whole thing about kids go to school, if they all wearing the same thing, whatever, whatever, then no kid is singled out and bullied for the quality of their clothing. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, kids are still bullied and singled out about the quality of the clothing. Clothing, uh, even though the uniforms are the same, you know, it was still it would turn to something else. Uh, so it wasn't leveling the playing field at all. It was just getting them used to wearing uniforms. Uh, uniformity. Uh, and uh, had I thought about that, I would have made different educational choices, I think. I think I would have made different educational choices. Too late, though. I, I, there's nothing I could do about it now. Um, but I certainly would have made different choices based on that information. You know, I'm, I wasn't happy with the parochial education. Uh, it just, I, I just needed, I needed, I honestly needed them to be in a small space contained where they could get some individualized attention. So that kind of helped, except, you know, they all learned differently and it was challenging for some of them. 
success success wise. And uh, out of the four, the three didn't really make enough friends, I think. Like, Brianna didn't really make good friends until um, high school. And even then, you know, it was... Uh, uh, limited. So, you know, interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So, uh, anyway, uh, I know something more now about about that and I would have would have made different decisions. But it's you know it's all water under the bridge. I mean they they are graduated adults and uh doing their thing. Uh I just hope some of them find their way back to uh higher education. But that is their choice and of their own making. Cause I can't um I don't, I'm just a consultant to the life. I'm not the manager of the life. So, voila. That's the way in the world. I'm just a consultant. And uh, and I happily stand in the consultant space because I don't want to tell them what to do. And, you know, you can't tell your kids what to do. No way. And you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be that parent, you know. You give them all that you could give them and then you let them fly. I got a mosquito bite on my clavicle. <laughs> and it is the most annoying thing. You know, it is just so, so annoying. I have to go bra shopping. I was I was thinking, I don't want to do anything this week while I'm in LSAT mode. But uh, I need to go bra shopping. I have tons of bras, but I cannot stand them. So I need, and then I've been wearing this one bra that is just not adequate, but I, I, I hate it less than the other bras. I know women have one bra that they wear all the time because it's, it's, it's not so much that it's comfortable, but it's just, it's not the other bras. And I have so many other bras that, and this underwire foolishness, oh, I just, but I want the support. You know, you want the support, but you don't want the underwire. And you don't want the uniboob. Like, you don't want a bra that makes it just look like a, a band of fat across you. You know, like a tire. Like, you don't want to look like you have a tire. You want some lift and, and separation. But you don't want the underwire. Because underwire is hideous. And, you know, and then I got, like, back fat. So I need to, like, smush that up a little bit. Smooth that out. That's what I want. So I've been on this, I've been looking at all kinds of bras that say they do all kinds of things, you know, and I, and I'm, I, you know, my, and my, and the girls are, are a little different because, you know, I've had them hacked up many years ago. So they don't have a, they, so they, they need support and, and shaping. I know. So I need to go and, you know, get a bra get some bras and I said I was going to do that for my birthday um and I messed around you know 
So I'm going to try to do that uh, sometime or other. You know, when I'm when I'm sick of LSAT stuff, and and I want another tor torture point. <laughs> when I, when I, when I when I want to be more annoyed over something, I'll go bra hunting, bra shopping. I'll go do that. You know, I'll go bra shopping. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Anyway, uh, that's the way of the world. That's my bra dilemma. So I'm lamenting bras. You know, so I, you know, once you say bras, like if I say bras and I go to my Facebook page, because, you know, my phone is listening to me, or if I click on a bra thing, it'd be like 50 million bra things that show up, you know, all kinds of bras. And then what I do is when they pop up, I go look at the reviews. And see what people say. And because uh, I, I, I just go look at the reviews and see if people like them or hate them. Because I can't invest any money. Bras are not cheap. Particularly for us busty chicks. They're not. They're not cheap. I can't. I can't go into Marshalls and just pull a bra out the bin. Or off the rack. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's a, that's a, that's a prescription for pain. So I have to go someplace where bras are, you know, where bras is the thing or bigger st stores where bras, where they have a whole bra section and they cater to all kinds of girls, you know. Um, so and, and then what I need to do is go through and get rid of all the bras that I hate because you know what? You hate to throw them out. You hate to throw them out because you didn't wear them that much. They're pretty. I have lots and lots of pretty bras that are that are just stupid. You know, I wore them a few times and I was like, oh my God, why didn't I buy this bra? It's so ridiculous. And and we all want beautiful, I love beautiful underwear. I love I live for beautiful underwear. I live for it. But it's oftentimes not the most comfortable stuff. Not the most comfortable stuff. So I used to buy all kinds of colored underwear. Now I only buy black, fancy black, but black. Because it just it just suits the purpose. I used to buy all kinds of pretty things, underwear, colored, florals, lacy. Now I'm just like, if they don't have it in black, I don't want it. I just like black underwear on my butt. <laughs> Now I have other color underwear that I wear. I'm about to get rid of all of them too. Because I, you know, I like cotton underwear and I like, you know, I like all kinds of underwear. But now that I'm older, I like a smooth that smoothing microfiber underwear that barely feels like gives you a little bit of smoothing, but feels like a whisper. Because cotton man can feel cannot feel light on your butt. You know, so I like a blend, a cotton blend, you know, with a cotton crotch. Yes, of course, because you need that air circulating down there. <laughs> but on the bodice, the body part, I like that microfiber that that I like it. I like the way it feels. 
I like it makes your clothes glide on better. I like it, you know. Uh, and now, because you know I'm a fat girl, and uh, and I I never really had this problem, but my thighs sometimes chafe. It doesn't happen often, but this summer has happened a lot more. So I need those little thigh, those shorts, those little underwear with the that are like shorts, with that microfiber that glide up and go down to your thighs a little bit, so that everything just smooth like butter. I like those. And I find them to be so comfortable. And I'm having a chafing problem because I'm losing weight, right? That's that's really what's happening. So I'm, for some reason, I'm losing weight. And it's a slow weight loss, which is very, very nice. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not a um, it's not a a, a a drastic weight loss. I'm just slowly, slowly, slowly slimming down. Uh, and some people are noticing, some people aren't noticing. People who hang around me are not going to notice it. People who don't see me are be like, oh, my God, you've lost weight. Yes, yes, I've lost some weight. Uh, and it's fine. Uh, I'm I'm on Ozempic um, uh, because I'm a diabetic. And, uh, and, uh, and all the other medicines that I was on wasn't helping to bring the blood sugar levels uh, to a place that needed to go. Um, and uh, my doctor was concerned about that, even though my A1C was, was, was on its own, uh, you know, with the help of diet and exercise was doing this thing. It wasn't getting as low as she wanted it to go. So the, so the Olympic has been very helpful in maintaining the blood sugar levels, um, and, and, and cutting down the neuropathy, neuropathy, you know, the tingling of the hands and the, and the feet. Because I was starting to have that experience, you know, and that's not a good sign. So, uh, so anyway, so I've lost twenty five pounds as of this morning. I, I, the other day it was twenty four, but I lost another four. So I, I'm under two eighty, which is nice, because I had climbed back up to two eighty four, and I was like, oh, that is not the damn direction. <laughs> So um and and so so with the Olympic I'm I'm still following a program like I'm I'm doing intermittent fasting so I don't eat all day until uh, I get to about four o'clock and then I eat one I eat one meal a day pretty much that's pretty much how it goes and I stop eating by eight o'clock at night uh and uh and that seems to that seems to be uh nice so. You know, uh, that seems to be that seems to be a, a good spot for me. So, so that's where we are. So it's been nice. Although I will tell you what I what I what I come to realize because I couldn't figure this out, and uh, and I had I had I and, and you know it's it's not even a problem. I just read up on other people's take on it. So when you are on Ozempic, they don't tell you not to drink. They suggest that you don't drink or you cut back a lot. And I didn't really, I should have cut back a lot. I mean, I think I have. It, it makes you feel like you want to cut back. But this is what I want to say. Having egg, two glasses of wine feels like having 10 glasses of wine. That's, that's how I feel on Ozempic. Because I, I had two glasses of wine the other night. I woke up, I was like, damn, did I? 
which wine did I drink? I only drank two glasses, but it felt like 10 glasses of wine, which it works out to be like two bottles of wine. It felt like I drank two bottles of wine. That's just, that's just Ozempic doing the blood sugar thing. And, you know, alcohol lowers your blood sugar anyway. So you have to be very careful. So that's a that might be a good thing to know that now so that when I want to drink something, I know I can't have three glasses of wine. I, I'll have one glass of wine and then that'll be it because one glass feels like two glasses. <laughs> and I was like, man, and I've been noticing that ever since I've been on a Zipic and drinking wine. I was like, man. I was like, I'm only drinking wine. I'm not drinking tequila. I'm not drinking bourbon. I'm not drinking, I'm just drinking wine. And it would just feel, I would just feel like, oh God, how much wine did I drink? And it would, and then I would be baffled because I'd be like, I didn't drink that much wine. Like I had two glasses. <laughs> and so then when I went online and I was like, can you drink on Ozempic? And everybody was chiming in about, Oh yeah, it'll make you feel like you had more more alcohol than you really had. I was like, okay, because I thought I was losing my mind. I was like, am I drinking too much wine and I'm not paying attention? No, I was drinking two glasses of wine. And it was feeling like, oh, I get to the third glass of wine, and this is over a period of time, so it's not like if I'm hanging out on the porch with my friends, three glasses of wine over four hours is nothing. Well, it's something when you feel like, oh, my God, did I drink that much wine? No, I didn't. <laughs> Ozempic is like, oh, Lucy. <laughs> so, so I'm drinking water. Drinking some water uh, with a little lemon in it, which is nice. Uh, which is really nice. I hate when I swallow and I get a big air bubble. And then it goes like all the way down until it like stops. Ugh, that's a terrible feeling. You know, when you drink and then the water, you drink water and then the air bubble goes with it because you're sucking it down. That's a terrible feeling. Terrible feeling. Anyway, um, so yeah. So, so yes, I, I'm just giving you the Ozempic update that, you know, I, I like the progression. Now, now I need to get my ass in gear and actually move my butt. Like, I have to do some exercising. That's the next check of this. And, uh, and I'd start and stop, start and stop. And if I really exercise, this weight would come off a lot faster. And I know this, right? Because been there, done that. But the Ozempic is really the catalyst for this. So, uh, so if I put some more effort to this, I, you know, I could, I would be by Christmas, I'll be down a good amount of pounds. You know, <laughs> so, so this is really just me just dragging my damn feet. I don't know what it is. I got to get up off my, get up off my, whatever that is. And, uh, you know, get up off of that thing and dance till I feel better. Get up off of that thing and, you know, dance. So that's where we are. So so I'm just lamenting bras and uh, exercise and LSAT. 
Oh, I can just get to this LSAT. Lord have mercy. But I will, because it's Friday, and there's no going back. There's no, uh, there's no looking back. LSAT, here I come. And, and that's what it is. And thank you to all the people who have been cheering me on. Oh, here's my eye exam. I need to order new glasses. I was looking for my eye prescription. Here it is. Um, so, I mean, listen. It's going to be what it's going to be. I'm looking forward to talking to Nicholas Dowd about this damn book. I don't know if he's listening to me now, but he might not be. He shouldn't be. <laughs> that damn book got on my nerves so bad. And I, I don't know how to... Um, I got to have more conversation about it because that it just it just got on my nerves, and I I feel some kind of way. I really feel some kind of way. I I and uh, I don't know how to be at peace with it. Do you know what I mean? Like I I don't know how. I don't know how I'm going to be at peace with this book. I think the the peace that I know is that uh. That that young man who's a grown up now in his thirties, forties, has has uh has uh gotten some compensation and is living a peaceful, quiet life of his own making. So so that makes me that gives me a modicum of peace. But but the the flip side of that is I don't want that mess to happen to anybody else in life. And and there's so many people who are serving time for things that they didn't commit. And I'm just baffled by that. I'm baffled by why police would 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 uh concern would not concern themselves with getting getting the, the right people for the right crimes. I, I'm baffled by that. I, I don't know why they would allow a crime to go to, to fall on the shoulders of somebody who didn't commit it. I, I, if I was a police officer, I would just be sick with trying to clean that up. Maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Maybe. Oh, here it is. I was looking for my, my taxes, too. I got to pay my taxes. <laughs> This is a mo this is a more this is a moment of discovery. <laughs> I I'm just discovering all the all the things, which is uh which is what I needed to do. So oh Lord have mercy. I'm glad I found what I was looking for. And uh I gotta pay my taxes and they sent a little letter. And you know they're so mean about it. So I'm just gonna go pay it online. That's what I'm gonna do. You know, or I, I could just go downtown and pay it. But I, if I could just pay it online, I could do it, and it would cost me what three dollars or some old mess. But uh, that'd be better than me having to, you know, uh, go downtown. Because then you have to find some place to park and all that foolishness. So. Anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna handle that. So I found 
what I was looking for. And if I would have looked for this when I was out and about and ready to go pay cash, I knew I saw it in my mind's eye. You ever do that? You see stuff in your mind's eye? And uh, I'm not doing this. I don't want to want this. So you know how you see stuff in your mind's eye, but but it's not quite where you sometimes it's not quite where you saw it. So let me pull out my my Nicholas Dowdoff book. He already signed it too. Start what? I'm gonna take a break in a little bit, and then I'm gonna come back, and we are going to get into it because got lots of and you know he didn't realize I didn't read the book he thought the two times that I talked to him because we did a salon where he was on the show and then we did a salon and he just thought I read the book and I was like no <laughs> I was like you see this book this is like war and peace and I'm not a I'm not I'm not a terribly slow reader either it's just you know I have a whole big life so you know this book is like I mean, let's see. It's like five hundred pages. Like, okay, when you when you read everything, everything like the bibliography. Like, if you're one of those people, I'm one of those people. I just want to see all the stuff. So it's four hundred and forty-two pages. A lot, but it was it was well worth it because I learned some things that I didn't know. Like, I really learned some stuff I didn't know, uh, and it just it just and this book just haunted me. Just. I'm so glad I finished it on Martha's Vineyard because Martha's Vineyard is a bomb. And uh, and it was nice to finish it there and then I could take a walk. So anyway, when I come back, uh, I'll be hanging out with Nicholas Dowdall, uh, the other side of Prospect, for the third conversation. <laughs> I'll be back. Hi, this is Bath Girls Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut. And you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org.
Falls Ivy, New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. good friend Nicholas Davidoff back in in conversation uh, because I read this book uh, and today is paperback day right it comes out in paperback today I think that's true that's the rumor on the uh, on the boulevard is that the, is that the, is that the rumor on the streets the publishing streets <laughs> yeah, that's what they tell me <laughs> Nicholas, can I tell if you, ever they I, talk to me I, I talked about this book so much. I had people in Martha's Vineyard going and buying it, like a bunch of people, because I was so I would sit on the porch and read this book every day. And then I, I don't know what kept me from not flinging it across the street at people. But people were like, oh, what do you read it? And then they would come on the porch and I was like, oh, this damn book right here. Ah. So people sent me pictures of them buying this book on the, on Martha's Vineyard. Just waiting to know. And my friend now we Jack. Have to hope- now we got to hope that they'll just send you, you know, porches across America. People <laughs> sitting and reading. This this book was tough. This was tough, Nicholas. I didn't read it the last two times we talked. I I, I hadn't read it yet, so I just finished it uh, on Martha's Vineyard uh, uh, last month, and uh, I, there was so much I didn't know. I I just didn't know so much. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of my job. It's a good job. And I wrote you a long email about it. I did, and I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I wrote Nicholas this long email because I think people were like, I had this conversation with uh, Paul Bass about it too. I think people were like, Bass, if you don't shut up about this book, we're going to push you down a flight of stairs. Because everywhere I went, I talked about it. And uh, and then and then I and then I slowed myself down because I I had to think you had to write this like. As you were writing this, Nicholas, and you, because you didn't really know this story until you got into the story. Well, I think I knew the, I think when you're writing a book like this, you are trying to find a way to tell a specific and particular story that reflects the broader thematic story that you're trying to tell. And mm-hmm. I knew the broader thematic story from the time I was a child in New Haven. And 
it was, I mean, New Haven, right, is a representative city. It has so many, it's just a smaller version of so many American cities. And it has so many of the virtues and wonderful qualities and also challenges of many American cities. So if you go to Baltimore, it's just kind of in some ways, New Haven four times bigger, right? And you could say the same thing about parts of Philadelphia and on across, you know, the heartland. And if you go through life and you see what you knew as a child replicated across time and some of the problems that you saw, and just as a child, you saw them and you you, you notice them, but you're a kid. And so you don't really know what to do with that other than to say, huh, why should that be? You know, um, at a certain point, I, I felt as I want to leave New York where I lived and come back to where I grew up and really grapple with those problems. And what I'm mainly talking about is, you know, post-industrial uh, communities across the country. Mm -hmm. I, I think you did a great job of teaching us about what that migration story looked like very personally, not, not because of you, but because of, of what it means to New Haven to have people come up from the South and to commit and create community here. Like you, you really laid that out for people. And, uh, and I, and even though we all know it, we didn't know it. You know, I was struck by how, uh, how, personal that felt to me knowing that part because my 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 people were from the south too uh, and they came up under the same sort of circumstances it's just not anything that we ever really talk about uh it's just a given right like because a whole bunch of people did it uh and my my folks worked at winchester then olin brass uh and then american linen which uh which the yale police department sits on um so so that Weren't those the green? Those were the green and white vans, right? Yes, the green. They, they, it was a commercial laundry, and they took care of all the linens for nightclubs, bars, restaurants, and some of the hospital because the hospital had an overflow of of sheets and towels and stuff like that. And so, so my parents worked there after you know, you know, in the in the lean days when Winchester was thinning out, and they they worked there, and uh, so. So yeah, so so it gave me a part of a story that I uh, uh, that I was I knew. I mean, because we know the story of migration, where some people went to Chicago. You know, the people who were in the in the Midwest, like in Arkansas and all those places, went to Chicago and California and those places. And people in South Carolina and Georgia and you know and all those places came uh, to Connecticut and New York and. Uh, so, so I was struck by the teach teachable moments of that. I also was struck by um, you went in to tell the story of, of of just about everybody. Like everybody had a backstory. Like you didn't leave any backstory out. Like everybody had some some backs. Even even the villains had backstories. You know. Well, I, I think everybody's complicated. And even for things that go wrong in life, there's always an explanation, even if it's the the, the individual's own explanation. It, it Most things in human life don't come from nowhere. And so I think, you know, you can't really understand a city or places unless you understand all the different motivations that lead individuals to make their decisions. And if you talk to enough, in, I mean, for this book, I think I talked to over 500 people. I know I did. Yeah. And I guess one of the reasons is that I was thinking I wanted to find a neighborhood 
which was a representative American neighborhood that could speak to many of the problems, not only, and again, the, the virtues and the triumphs, not only of that neighborhood itself, but it could speak to many other neighborhoods that had some qual larger qualities in common. And I think to do that, the only responsible way to do that is for to do your best. I mean, I would have spoken to the whole city if I could have, and that, you know, that's not possible, but I spoke to as many people as I could. And so, as you know, from the time when we met, the last question was always, who do you think I should talk with? And, you know, you would say, um, because everybody, <laughs> everybody remembers life differently, especially when they encounter somebody just in a moment, there, mm -hmm. there are only a couple of specific things that'll come quickly to mind. And I remember for you, for example, it was telling about that truck that came up from the Carolinas, you know, where a farmer had come up through the night to sell fresh greens all around the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you sort through? You talked to 500 people, Nicholas. How do you sort through and how do you how do you hold yourself through all these conversations? Because some of these conversations are not going to be joyous. Some of these conversations are not going to be easy. Right. Like some of these conversations are going to be painful. How do you I don't know if you could shield yourself. How do you hold yourself through all these conversations and not be like, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, you know, I that's a, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, I you know who Matthew Desmond is, he the person who wrote about eviction and then and he's written recently a book about poverty. And I remember one of the things that he was saying in, in, in his notes on the sources for his book about eviction was that in talking to people day after day whose lives are not going the way they hope they will go and who are really struggling with serious life issues, I don't think you could be a, a human being if you weren't on some level feeling down yourself about what other people are going through. And then you couldn't also be a halfway decent human being if you didn't immediately say to yourself, well, this isn't my life. This is this person's life. So who am I to feel so badly when I'm just the person who's trying to understand a series of lives of which this is one? But I think it is unmistakable that in writing about a, a group of people where there is a fair amount of struggle and pain, and not only that, but where that is a serious element of the story you're telling, if you're going to do it well, you have to remind yourself to find places of solace, because if you don't, it can get very upsetting. Yeah. Because I feel as though, I mean, one of the reasons that I did this is because when I was a child growing up in New Haven, you know, some of the things that I was seeing and I didn't understand as a child, but just sensed had a feeling for were upsetting. And it's just, you know, we're talking about structures of the country, nothing a kid could do anything about but notice. But you would notice how close some of your friends who are growing up who with a real serious lack of opportunity, real struggle, and we're talking about issues surrounding food and clothing and things. And then right over there, you know, just a just a short walk away are children who are having a very different life experience. And to see that juxtaposition was for me always really confusing. And as a child, I always want to know what it meant. Like, why should this be? Why are the why is why are there these great divisions and gulfs just in life experience at such proximity? 
And it just felt to me as a kid um, confusing. And I think that one of the things, you know, photographers talk about is these great photographers are people who can see life with the clarity of a child because children don't have many, many, many other experiences to confuse and to explain away and so forth. They just see things with a certain kind of almost poetic purity, right? Or that's mm -hmm. how we imagine it. There's just not enough experience to confuse things. It's a, it's an immediate perception. And that immediate perception, I mean, it first really came to me when I was playing baseball at Bowen Field. And I just remember, you know, sort of looking out through the backstop up at how close Yale University was from the baseball field we were playing on, which, you know, had a lot of glass and it was dusty and kids around me, some of them were were really were, were struggling in certain ways, even though we didn't talk about it. And when you think about things like that, you think of, as a kid, again, as I said, you're just sort of saying, hmm, you know, this is kind of this seems weird to me that there should be this abrupt demarcation. And why would this be? But then. You know, as you go through life, you hear many explanations and you hear lots of things. But if you go back to that pure initial feeling of surprise and confusion, that was really my guide for the entire story. Mm. I really, as kids, you know, we didn't talk about these things, but I want to know what that felt like. Now, you could have, I mean, and coming back to New Haven from being away, and this is your hometown, this is where you're from. Uh, you could you could have wrote a different story. Like you you could have just written it. I mean, you're talented, you're award winning, you're celebrated. You could have written a different story. But what was it about? I mean, I understand the piece about reckoning with your childhood and what you saw. But I mean, there's so many other stories you could have written about. What was it about? Because this is this is so layered. And I get this when I read this when I read this book. I felt like. You were telling and teaching at the same time. That's how I felt. I felt like you were teaching us something and then you were telling us something and then you were sharing something. I, that's that's my experience of the book. Like I felt like it was a master class in uh, community. It was a master class in rethinking and reimagining policing. Uh, it was a master class in uh, uh how how certain communities are handled and other communities aren't handled in terms of law enforcement. I felt that very acutely, you know. Well, I think one of the things that was challenging, and maybe I, I waited as long as I did in life to do this, even though I'd been thinking about it for a long time, is because I think it took a lot of experience to be able to handle a big American story that had many different features, as you say, policing, uh, prison, reentry, early childhood education, um, different forms of work, the history of a neighborhood, how neighborhoods change, different forms of immigration, and to make it all part of a story. In other words, of course, when you're a writer and you're learning about your subject, you're teaching yourself, and then you're right that there's inevitably some element that you'll be offering your reader something new. But really, a reader isn't going to your nonfiction book when there are a lot of things out there to um, chew on a stick of wood instead of having delicious, you know, delicious dessert to eat. And I guess the most difficult part are two things. One thing is 
of the immense amount of material that you gather, choosing what will speak to the story you want to tell, and then two, making it into a story so that it really does feel to people like they are being told a story, not mm-hmm. that they're being given some sort of master class on something that maybe they think the writer, they think the writer thinks they should know, but nobody really wants to read out of should. They want to read out of pleasure. Reading's supposed to be a pleasure. And a pleasure can be, you know, intriguing and interesting, but ultimately it still must be pleasure because there are a lot of books out there and a lot of really yeah. good books out there. So I don't know. I might have to push back on you on the plus. I did not find pleasure in this book. Although I, but I, I understand what you mean because I love reading. But I, 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 I mean, I even been, just the language, you know, the quality of language, I, I loved the quality it. of the quality I, of coming to know people and so forth. Yes. I don't mean that they're, that they're, I mean, good, sad, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm changed. It has changed. It has forever changed me. Like I, I, I know where I was different when I read this. Like I know the moment I was very different and I, I was just taken aback. And I, you know, and I've had these conversations with friends who have read the book and, uh, and I'm about to engage in a conversation with somebody who's going to have a conversation with you, Ryan, who is uh, engaging you at the YDS uh, because she was with me on Martha's video when I was going on, <laughs> going on about this book. And, uh, and she's reading it now. And, uh, and she's like, Oh Lord. <laughs> and she's a reverend. Like she's a minister. She's like, it's like this is a lot of story. I said it is a lot of story. It's a lot of stories. Um, uh, it's a lot of story, and but it is, but it is teachable. Like I feel like I was, I was learning something too, and I I don't even know if that's the side effect, but it felt like uh, it felt like I I was learning something because there was so much. Like I didn't even know about the predatory lending lending piece. I just thought that was awful. You know the, the 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 loan piece. I I've never heard of that. You know I didn't. I had no awareness of that. And then I went and looked it up, and it just it just got on my. <laughs> it just wore me out, and I thought, I this is there anybody that can stop this or not so much. I don't know what I don't know what the stop is. I just means who who protects people from these kinds of things like how how does this but that's just one it's one part of it that sort of tripped me up the the other part was uh so many moving parts so many moving parts that just went along with the story and i didn't see any intervention at any point except for the late um attorney pollen like she was very, she could see very clearly that this was an injustice and she quietly made inroads to change it. And how did you- I would just push push back a tiny bit and I would say that, you know, there's a, there are appearances by Michael Jefferson, who is a person who is pushing back and certainly Ken Rosenthal, another lawyer in in the book, he is dedicating years of his life. There are all sorts of people. I mean, I feel as though one of the great things about New Haven is that there's a long history of people here who are civically oriented, who have real, real public concern, and they make it a really compelling and for a small city, a chorus of very different and very um, 
affecting voices, right? But I think mm -hmm. one of the lessons of the country right now is that if you want real cultural change, if you want things to be better for lots of people, and that's what I mean by change, you can't do that unless major institutions participate. And it's major institutions, which places that have the real, I mean, we are talking about government and we're talking about government institutions, or you're talking about large universities or you're charging large corporations. Unless you have a civic orientation for, and I mean, you would think it was inevitable that government would be civically oriented, but not always, right? I mean, everybody's making choices, right? And usually making people making choices um, from their perceived self-interest. So unless you have a sense of enlightened self-interest from big institutions, then it's hard, no matter how many well-intended, good-hearted people you have to affect you know, signal changes. Mm. That's one so, of the, I ahead. mean, for me, that was one of the most substantive things I learned. You can have all the goodwill in the world. I mean, Yale University is a really good example. There are untold generations of people at Yale University, professors, administrators, students who have been open-hearted people who've come to New Haven, who've taken on New Haven uh, in the small way that an individual can and tried to be a good neighbor and a good citizen of the city and to, um, understand elements of the city, even as though they're going about their own business, going beyond themselves and so forth. And New Haven also, it's like Minneapolis is a city where per capita, there are more theaters than any city in the country. New Haven's always kind of- Yeah, and New Haven unofficially has always been sort of noted as the place with more nonprofits per capita. There are yeah. all kinds of small scale goodwill here. But unless you have major institutions who are working- alongside all these well-intended people, there can be a real division between individual or small group of people effort and larger effort. And I think if you really ask me why I did this, it's because I never was clear that what I was seeing as a kid was acknowledged as a problem, that there were mm. too many people, you know, that there were all across this country, there were people living in proximity, some of whom had a lot, and for whom, and everybody's just busy with their lives, right? So this isn't necessary. I don't mean this in terms of aspersion or blame. I just mean that there's some people who have a lot and then just right across that glass window or right across that invisible railroad track are people who are really struggling. And that the reason they're really struggling, it isn't their fault. The reason they're struggling is because they arrived at a place with a given understanding of how an economic model worked and the economic model changed. And when you don't have a lot, it's hard to shift yourself and change along with it. And so I just wondered, ultimately, what it came down to is generations beginning early in the 19th century came from Europe and then eventually from South Carolina, North Carolina, other places like that, to the city because there were pretty well-paying jobs for undereducated, underskilled people who wanted to become skilled, who wanted to educate their kids, and who could eventually, at these jobs, buy a first house, buy a second house, get a car, get a um, get a bank account that eventually became tuition for their kids. So all around New Haven are people for whom this model worked. But once the model began to, with the decline of industry, once the model began not to exist anymore, then what? And I guess that was 
what I felt was a start was just to acknowledge that there are all sorts of costs when something that seems promised doesn't then exist. And Mm -hmm. some individuals, of course, can pivot, but it takes a lot of personal agility and a lot of personal resources when what seems like a norm is gone. It takes an exception to do it. I mean, there's a point of view in America where everybody can sort of fix everything if they just try hard enough. But, you know, there's that old line, which we've heard many, many times, but, you know, it's hard to pull yourself up from your bootstraps when you don't have any boots. So (laughs) I think that this is just, this is just, you know, these are the kinds of things I'm thinking about. But in thinking about those things, nobody wants to hear, you know, people just go on and on about the problems. People want to hear actually with some humanity how those problems express themselves and also the beautiful things about people, even when even when people are struggling, you know, people are much more than struggle and neighborhoods are much more than one way. And so, so and 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 I, I would say that when you lay over race on top of this story, right? Because I don't know if this would be the same kind of story with white people. I mean. If, if 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 the players were all white people, uh, uh, how how do you how do you reconcile that component to it? Like how do you how do you wade through those waters of race racism? Telling the story, I think. Well, when you're talking about a segregated neighborhood where people are struggling, there are explanations for it. It isn't just it, it, it didn't just happen, right? And so you would want to know how it happened and why it happened and how you can overcome these issues. And I guess this is just my own opinion, but race layered with class is the most difficult American problem still. And that's not to say that there aren't many, many other American problems and that there aren't many other different kinds of communities with their own very real struggles. And everybody's struggles deserve to be recognized and to be understood and so forth. But there's a particular kind of struggle I think that we're talking about that is especially hard and especially enduring. And those are struggles that can't be understood as most significant struggles can't be understood unless there's history. So that's why in the book, there's history at the beginning. I tried Mm -hmm. as well as I could to tell a tiny history of the country through the prism of one neighborhood. And that's why it goes back. And that's a lot. I mean, people probably hear that and they think, oh, no, celery and carrots, you know. (laughs) But I mean, (laughs) you know, there are lots of ways to tell things. And I really did hope that in writing this, that there would be a sense of people being interested and it would arouse curiosity and, and, and engagement that people would wonder suddenly now that they were seeing that all over New Haven, the second most common license plate after Connecticut license plates would be South Carolina license plates. Why should that be? And it would open up a city and it would make a city feel more human and closer to you than simply a place where you lived and there are other people who are vaguely over there and over there and over there. It would make you feel more a part of things, no matter who you were. Mm, that's, that, I, that, that's, that's an interesting thought. I, I, I think the people that I've talked to, I think uh, the thing that they were most struck by, at least in all the conversations that I've had, uh, people were struck by just the level of injustice 
and uh and and it's such a contained injustice like it was just happening in real time in this community and 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 no one seemed to could figure out I, I think I think what I was struck by is the level of fear during that particular time that people had about coming forward. I, I was struck by that. I was also struck by uh, I'm also struck by unsolved cases and how prevalent that is and what what happens to unsolved cases. You know, like what happens to those like. What happens to the, the people who want to know what happened to their loved ones? You know, like yeah. what happened I to think them? For me, everything in specific speaks to something bigger and more general. So mm -hmm. unsolved cases, it speaks to me first and foremost to trust. Like the way cases get solved is policing is a responsive business. People can't, people can't solve cases as police. I mean, for all the things that you see on Perry Mason or whatever all these shows are, you know, where there's a sudden Did line. Did you say of Perry Mason? Well, didn't it just get revived or something? I, you know, I grew up without a TV, so I don't know about the way back. Maybe that's the wrong guy. Maybe it was Mason Perry. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you know, that that sort of model where the ingenious Sherlock Holmes like person can just solve every case because that 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 detective is just, you know, such superlative skills. Really, the way cases get solved is mm -hmm. police respond and they have sources of information and the community comes together and helps people solve something that is a source of great pain for lots of people. So, you know, I feel as though when that doesn't happen, largely it's an issue of trust. Nobody's going to trust police if police haven't become a part of the community themselves in different mm -hmm. policing um, in New Haven, different policing generations have been better about it than some others. And there have been incredibly progressive administrations in policing. And there have been some that have been, you know, less so. And um, but that's how I think about solves. I think about solves as sort of representative of police and community. And I also think, um, you know, people say, well, if 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 there's a high rate of violent crime, what do you, what needs to happen with policing to make it go down? But I always see it as a sort of a binary or dual problem. I see policing as a response to something that has happened. And maybe in some cases, the ability to have enough on the street information so things can be anticipated and cut off. But more usually, you never see a whole lot of violent crime in places where people are feeling fulfilled, where they feel there's a decent amount of opportunity, where they feel as though um, it's just neighborhoods where people aren't struggling, usually aren't neighborhoods where there's a lot of violence. I mean, name one. You can't. And so that to me is, I mean, the great to me, the greatest policing of all is opportunity. Mm. So. You know, the book has been out for quite some time now. Lots of people have read it and the paperback is coming out. What what what, what do you want people to know about this book, Nicholas? Like what do you what do you want people to when they read this book, when they sit, when they choose this book, what what are you hoping for them? Well, I guess it's just some of the things that you and I have just been discussing. I hope it deepens their sense of cities and how they work. And also it gives a sense. I mean, I feel as though the people who are written about in the book are neighbors and they're neighbors of one another in the book. But they really, I hope, are sort of representative American neighbors. 
that these are people who you know just a little better through a book. And just as you get through your neighbors, you get to know other people's experiences and the world broadens and the world deepens. I hope that that that's what happens too. And um, I suppose there are all sorts of, you know, things in terms of personal vanity that you would hope. In other words, you would hope that people would enjoy the story, that you that you wrote the story well enough and carefully enough so that um you know that 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 uh people would get if not joy a certain kind of pleasure from something that they care about does that make sense yes i i will tell you i live next door to the uh to the woman who was an extreme couponer <laughs> i love like, that I, I i live next door to her and i would have not put two and two together had i not read the book like I was like, oh, I'm next door to this lady. <laughs> See, that's the thing about neighborhoods and the thing about life is that it's easy enough to, you know, you know, you somebody goes on Wikipedia and they read about a state or a neighborhood or a city or something, they get all the demographics and you know, the the brief thumbnail descriptions of a place. But places are really made up by individuals and the individuals who come together and are their own people too. And um just as, you know, you on your porch is one kind of person and the guy driving by selling you, you know, things that he grew on his farm and he drove up through the drove up through the night and the way he sells them and then the way you cook them and the way they taste and who you invite over to have them and just all the stories, good and bad. That's 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 neighborhood. And that's I mean, you know, what do we all remember through life? We remember, you know, sort of our surroundings as we grew up. We remember, you know. What really happened on the first day of school? You know, you start out with your <laughs> sidewalk and it's just you're a little kid and you've got the sidewalk in front of your house and that delimits the whole world. Right. And, you know, everything about every crack and, you know, you know, the the meridian going out to the street and, you know, and then as you get older, the sidewalk just lengthens and lengthens. And there are more and more things, you know, you know why that lady dropped her shopping bag. The first time I ever saw somebody drop their shopping bag and everything in that shopping bag, just all over the street. And the expression on that old lady's face who was walking by me and I'm a little kid and I, I've just, I don't know why this is coming to mind now, but it was a really profound experience. Just the way she looked as all her eggs smashed. I mean, she must oh. have been laid into her eighties and I'd seen disappointment plenty. I mean, anybody who grows up with a single mom has seen plenty of, you know, challenges, but seeing that lady's face when she dropped her shopping bag and there was nothing a little kid could do to help because everything was broken. There was milk and there were eggs and there, everything was broken and it was all over and the shopping bag, you know, the brown bottom went out. And I was just, you didn't even have to talk to her and you could see just how much more it cost her than it would cost most people because part of it was the walk and she wanted, I now know, you know, having lived a little more life that it was, when you are as elderly as she appeared to be, and you are as thin, as frail as she appeared to be, and I know how far away the stores were from my, you know, my house then, I know what it takes to still have your own volition and your own independence and agency, you know, to be a person who still goes shopping for yourself. And I just remember, you know, how much more would have gone into it than just somebody going and picking up some eggs. And so I think that's neighborhood too. I like it. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And I'm going to meet you for coffee in a little bit. We're going to have more conversation. So uh, I would imagine you are a good observer of the world. What are you working on now? <laughs> I'm actually writing a book about an observer of the world. 
the per person. <laughs> no, it's true. That's the person people, many people think is the greatest American photographer there ever was. And maybe it's a guy named Robert Frank, who in the 1950s took a series of photographs that are called the Americans. And in the 1950s, this was still a time when public photography, in other words, photography meant for mass distribution, were generally pictures of people who are either very famous or celebrated. Celebrity was a new concept then, or people who are in the news, big in the news. It wasn't just what he would have called ordinary people. And he spent years driving around the entire country, taking 27,000 photographs oh. of what he called ordinary Americans. And then the book became 83 pictures um, of the 27,000. It's called The Americans. And it is a fantastic book. But the story of the journey and then what he and his life and what that book meant and then what he did with all the rest of his life. He, I mean, he's a great American artist and it is a he's like the artist's artist and it is the story of him. And in certain ways, you can imagine how somebody who worked on a project as I just did would feel a certain kind of, you know, you would I would I mean, I met him. I knew him for the last 10 years of his life and he died in well into his 90s. So you could imagine how somebody who had had that experience was a wonderful person to talk with as I was working on this project, but also how that particular experience and the ability to see with a camera lens deep into the lives of other people and just in these fleeting moments create visual short stories. It's really an incredible and to me significant and you know thrilling thing to do. And not just me. I mean, you talk to Bruce Springsteen, or you talk to, um, I, I, I just, you can't imagine the number of artists who keep copies of that book very close at hand when they are working on their own art. I mean, when Bruce Springsteen wrote Nebraska, for example, he had a copy of that book in every room of his house because that book was, it was, you know, it was his, you know, source stone. It was the, the locus of inspiration. And, mm -hmm. um, you can imagine that somebody who could do something like that would be a pretty complicated and ambivalent and, you know, fascinating character themselves. So it's going to be a little book about him. Oh, well, I can't wait. Well, hopefully it won't come out until I finish all the other Nicholas Dowdoff books. <laughs> that I, That's like that the I piano have, on the back. That I, have, that I have stacked in little places like, okay, I got I got through this one. I'm going to get through the other one. So. So thank you for your time this morning. And oh, this is a paperback. Nice Everybody, go and find it at your uh, at your local books booksellers. Uh, I go to Possible Futures, and you can too. And and uh, Lauren over there will order it if it's not sitting in the stores. But this is over there too, and hard hard copy. Um, but it's it's well worth your read. Like it is, it's challenging and it's a ride, but it is quite illuminating. So thank you, Nicholas. It's good talking to you. It's always good to talk with you, Babs. Have a beautiful day. I'll see you in a little bit for coffee. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thank you, Harry Draws. I'll see y'all tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you for all best. I hope everybody is well. I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, y'all behave yourselves. 50 years of hip hop. Get it. Hi, this is Babs Rawls Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at New Haven Independent.org. Yes, keep it going.